Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to Your Booked, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your host, Daisy Buchanan. Firstly, would you like to be on the podcast? If you pre-order my new novel, Limelight, you can win the chance to be our guest and share your shelves with us and your fellow listeners. We've partnered with bookshop.org. If you pre-order from them, there's a link in the show notes, you'll be automatically entered into a prize draw. If, for whatever reason, that's not the prize for you, a fabulous alternative shall be arranged. Limelight is out on the 1st of June. It's a story about sisterhood, sexuality and self-esteem. It's about Frankie and how she craves and fears attention and what happens when she's unexpectedly forced into the spotlight. Also head to bookshop.org if you'd like to pick up my latest novel, Careering, as featured on BBC Sounds. It's out in paperback on the 9th of March. Now, on to our guest. When I'm not reading books, I'm listening to one of my other favourite podcasts, Wheel of Misfortune, or watching repeats of Taskmaster. So I'm so happy to tell you who our guest is this time. It's the Fern Brady. We are celebrating the publication of Fern's incredible memoir, Strong Female Character, a book I've not stopped talking about since I read it. Fern is a rapacious reader. We talk about sexy 70s books, addiction memoirs and generies. I love this conversation and I hope you do too. Thank you so much for sending over your amazing book list. And I was oh, not I was really excited that you mentioned the Diablo Cody book because when I read your book and I loved it so much and it written the best way, it kind of, it reminded me of Diablo Cody, that sort of that voice and that spirit. And obviously your book is, you know, completely your voice and it's different, but the yeah, being yeah. so funny and the way you talk about stripping and bodies and yeah, so curious yeah. and detached and it's like a kind of anthropology. So did you read her book recently or a little while ago? Um, no, it was ages ago. I only just thought of it today because my boyfriend was like, oh, you should try and send your book to her. And, and actually it was someone I was going out with at uni when I was doing that job, bought me that book. And I was so excited because obviously you want to read books that are about yourself. And that at that time, because I'd say now it's kind of all the rage to write about when you did sex work. It feels like it's becoming cool now. Whereas when I did it, it was uh, life destroying and like you wouldn't tell anyone you did it. So when I got her book, I was like, it was so exciting. She just wrote about it in the same way that I write and talk about it, where it was funny and daft and there was all these, like, characters coming in. It, it saddens me, though, that that never got made into anything because I know after she wrote that, that got that was what uh, got her script commissions and stuff. 
but not to write about that. So I always get frustrated that there's never been a decent TV show about strip clubs. But that's actually how I wrote this book. Um, I'd been stuck doing a script for like five years and they actually paid me to rewrite it a second time. And it was so frustrating because they wanted me to make it sadder or more vulnerable or something. And I had to cut all the dark, sort of really black humour out of it. Uh, and I just kind of came to this realisation, what I want to see on screen isn't going to get made. And it would be much quicker to try and write a book of what I want than to try and work with other people on a script. And then, you know, Adam Kay, that um, wrote, writes the book about being a doctor, <laughs> writes the books about being a... I can't speak today. Well, I messaged him. He's always been really supportive and lovely to me. And I messaged him... And I said, do you know, I think I would be quicker uh, writing a book and getting the book made into a script than continuing with this script. And he said, yeah, you, you might be. Uh, so that was how I started doing my book. And it, I mean, it has it, it has been written and is going to come out quicker than than the whole time I was doing that script. So it's really satisfying to have finished it and to have been allowed to say what I wanted to say. I can't stop telling people about it, and I love the energy of it. So, thank you. I was so, I can't believe you read it. And then, because it's weird, I heard you on Women's Hour or something while I was writing mine, and I think you were saying, oh, I hope my parents don't read the sex scenes in my book. And that was one of the things I was thinking the whole time I was doing mine. But I actually don't even have sex scenes in my... I think the camera just tastefully pans away <laughs> in a lot of them because I was so embarrassed. That's great because, like, the presence of sex is there. But I love... And I think that's one point where you talk about how, you know, there are lots of things that have happened to women and you talk about like, our bodies and mm. that's sort of the vulnerability and the way we get judged. But also you're really frank about the fact that sex can just be you know, an experience you enjoy is something sensory and it doesn't have to be loaded with emotion or, you know, it can have all the meaning or none of the meaning. And I found that, I'm not sure, yeah. I think that does come across a bit in Diablo Cody's bit, but I guess what she's talking about is something different because she's talking about her work as a performer, which I think is in your book as well. But it really stayed with me and I kept thinking about it. Um, I did want to ask you about a book that you mentioned that you've read recently that I've never read and I'm really curious about, uh, Kinflix. Oh, yeah, so I just remembered it today. I had an aunt that um, I was really bored at her house in the summer holidays, and she she had all these... I mean, she never spoke about feminism to me or anything, but she had all these, like, amazing 70s classic feminist novels on her bookshelf, uh, and one of them was called Kinflix, which is this book that seems to have gone out of print. And I think it's interesting in relation to my book uh, and and also autistic women it's not a book about autism uh it's about uh, a woman who is having an identity crisis through the 60s and 70s and she starts off a popular girl at school then she goes to uni and she becomes like a radical uh lesbian feminist um and then she ends up going and becoming a really obedient housewife and married to a man and she moves through all these different versions of being a woman and that kind of identity crisis is something that a lot of autistic women seem to experience. I think the writer Holly Smale, she just got diagnosed around the same time as me. 
I'm sure she's talked about it. It's not something, I don't think it's something I've had as much. But yeah, Kim Flix is a really interesting book from that perspective. And also just, it's a book where I was like, I don't know why this was never made into a TV show because it's so good and funny and it seems to have gone out of print. But I was reading about it today and there was a lot of like hype around it at the time. And I think if it came out now, women's literature is judged differently and it's judged less harshly. So So I think Holly Smale's first adult book, I think she has written YA and books of teens, or sort of books that are marketed at teens. I think lots of adults enjoy them. But I think her novel's called The Cassandra Complex. And I think Oh, have you got it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think I might have. I've either got a copy or I'm waiting for one. If not, I'm desperate to read it. But when I heard her speaking about it and about that experience of sort of her diagnosis, and I think maybe being sort of around, I think we're about the same age, sort of late 30s ish. Mm. um, I found it really moving. And I was really struck Mm. by that, that I love reading because I get to read about people who are not like me at the same time. I'm a white woman and I've grown up seeing myself in books and reading about myself all the time. And we were talking to uh, Mallory Blackman we had on the podcast and Mm -hmm. she was talking about the weirdness of growing up and being a young reader and they're just, you know, loving books with all her heart, but never really seeing herself and not reading Mm -hmm. a book with a black woman at the centre of it until she's about 22. And I was trying to think about the books with women with autism at the center Mm. and I'm sure there are you know maybe older books where we didn't have the words for you know any kind of neurodivergence and I was wondering about the how you found yourself in books and whether that was something that you sought out. There's a lot of things that I think are books about autism but they don't you can identify with them as an autistic woman for example like the bell jar there was a lot um I got out of that because she uh resents everyone she goes to uni with and feels a kind of terrible isolation around all these women and also a lot of the bell jars about looking at what other women are doing and feeling like you don't want that for yourself but you're not sure what version of femininity is right for you then uh Jeanette Winterson I remember like I, I was so obsessed with her when I was at school because even though I present in a really feminine way from a job I wear heavy makeup for work and I dress in a feminine way I always have the sense of being an alien and I just loved looking at the obviously I read the book but I liked looking at the back of my copy of Oranges because there was this very uh just androgynous picture of Jeanette Winterson and it was really exciting to see a sort of high status androgynous person in a book because where I'm from it feels like you get rewarded for being very feminine or very masculine it's hard to explain but I just oranges are not the only fruit I just identified with so much I was obsessed with it I love that that makes a lot of sense and I think it's so powerful when you read a book especially I think when I was a teenager and even now it's so intimate isn't it hearing a voice mm. and it feels like such a direct form of communication like even I though I know in my logical brain this is being read by thousands potentially millions of people it's not directly to me but there's another bit mm. of me it's like yeah but it is though and when you see the author and the author is someone that you feel that absolute it's the opposite of a pang that connection you're like well that that could mm. be me and we are alike I can 
imagine how powerful that must have been. Yeah, and I do. I mean, I'm very prone now to sort of go digging through things online, trying to find information on authors I really like and be like, oh, I wonder if they're autistic and try and put the pieces together. Actually, um, Joanne, there's a writer called Joanne Lindbergh that wrote a really good book called Letters to My Weird Sisters, and she makes a case for certain writers being autistic and that or oh there's some by the way there's some politics around whether you're allowed to say someone from the past is autistic or not it's not something I'm really bothered about but um in case Joanne gets annoyed with me I'm sorry if I've worded this wrong but she writes in a really really interesting exciting way about um Virginia Woolf's characters as autistic and um they're, they're definitely like outsider women. I, I always tend to read stuff about outsiders and people on the margins. Um, so you can kind of find yourself as an autistic person by looking for books that are about that. Really interesting that you mentioned Virginia Woolf because as soon as you said that and about people from the past, my brain went, oh, I wonder. Yeah, yeah. She ticks a lot of boxes in terms of, because like a lot of autistics are um, m- more of us than compared to neurotypicals, I think like about 70% of us would be uh, bi or gay or um, have some sort of queer sexuality. And then just the fact that she like was plagued with mental illness all her life and uh, eating problems that she had. Like there's just so, so many things. It's really interesting to look at her work and reassess it in that way. So yeah, Joanne's books are really good read for looking at literature like that. I got really frustrated that there was, I mean, if there if the, these exist, I didn't grow up reading them. I never read any like books about Scottish women. Really, all the stuff I was reading was Irvin Welsh or James Kelman, or um, it was all very male. Uh, so even though I enjoyed Irvin Welsh stuff and it was exciting to read stuff set in Edinburgh, because I'm just from just outside Edinburgh, you were always like, oh, I just wish there was more stuff about women if you're looking to to find autistic people to identify with and stuff literature is a good place to start because i'd say there's much more likely to be more neurodiverse people in literature uh and i know that a lot of autistic people like to really lose themselves in reading um but i don't really read enough anymore i don't really read fiction as much as i did when i was younger Everything I read now is non-fiction, which is bad. <laughs> I've read so many memoirs. And I loved that the list you sent over, um, there were loads of memoirs that I'm desperate to read. I've still not read the the Jeanette McCurdy, and I want to talk to you about that. But I was wondering whether it's just that you don't feel drawn to fiction in the way that you once did, or if you have to kind of feel like your mind's in a place that's ready for fiction. No, basically when I did, so I did English Lit at uni and I remember a couple of people saying it really kills your love of fiction. And then I don't know if that was a self-fulfilling thing, but after uni, uh, and I left uni ages ago, I just read non-fiction um, and it's mad because I was so prolific uh, as a reader before that. So I, I don't know why it is. It's mental. That's something I loved in your book, the way that you talked about how much you read and how constantly you read when you were younger. And that was a safe yeah. place for you to be with a book. Yeah, I remembered. I'd forgotten this till I was writing the book, but I remember my parents thinking it was strange. 
they were they were really encouraging about me reading, but I used to read multiple books at once. So I would rotate through two or three at once. And uh, I would like miss trains or get off at the wrong train stop because I was just staring at a book. And I found loads of pictures just after I got the book deal that was just every picture of me as a child. I just was holding a book. So that was cute. But I, did, I read a lot of memoirs over the last year because because I was writing one. So a lot of the time I, I would do it like, this is this is really bad. I would read memoirs being like, I'll bet this is rubbish uh, to try and boost my confidence. But then I just ended up reading really good books off the back of that. <laughs> I love that that was the side effect of it. It's, so, it's such a bad instinct. But I, I think this is such a brilliant time for memoir. And, you know, once upon a time... Yeah. You'd read, oh, like, oh, it's a book by a celebrity. It's like David Jason on Del Boy's massive incidents. And, you know, yeah. you'd think, yeah, no, this is not the book for me. And now there's, you know, like your book, so many really beautiful, thoughtful, inventive books. I've just started a book that I've wanted to read for ages. And my friend lent it mm. to me, A Delicacy by Katie Wicks, which I've been reading. I'm reading that just now. No way. That's the exact, but I've been reading it today because she's interviewing me for for like a book event which is cool because she's autistic as well oh I didn't know so that I'm, yeah she does do, she wouldn't like mention it very much which is uh fine because um I've, I've been told to like tone it down with mentioning it too much but yeah her book is um really good but I'm reading it trying to spot autistic bits in it because when you said I thought I missed a, a chapter. Was I not paying attention? She she, do, she just doesn't really mention it, which is like fair enough. But also, I do remember when, because you know how you get books by comedians. There's like a type of book by a comedian where there's a picture of them prominent on the cover, and it's very like insincere and sort of flippant about the details of their life. I was very keen to like explain to people I hadn't wrote that kind of book and with Katie's book I remember when it came out more of my peers than normal were like oh her book's really good. It has been this kind of slow mentionitis thing and I sort of vaguely remember hearing about it and thinking oh that sounds incredible. Also as someone who I have lots of issues with disordered eating. Most of the time mm. it's fine. The odd thing can mm. kind of trigger it or throw it out. And I think maybe I was in one of those moods where I thought, oh, is this going to set me on an awkward path? Um, and actually, mm. I'm really struck by how sensitively she writes about it and how non-triggered <laughs> I feel, for want of a better expression. Yeah. She really seems so so thoughtful and understanding about that side of life. And it's the kind of book where you think, oh, wish this is something that people in government should read all those awful initiatives about public health and why do people do this and that entire lack of understanding about the emotions and the mental side of things and I think this book explores that so thoughtfully but yeah it's yeah. good that after Christmas after a week of eating cheese I do I feel understood and not filled with self-loathing yeah <laughs> And also, the my favourite bit of it was the, the section early on where she talks about her friend at high school um, who just stopped talking to her when she joined her school. Things like that, That's that was something I was obsessed with when writing my book is, I think it's called toxic femininity. Um, the way women are mean to each other is so underhand and so subtle. 
Um, and if you're not good at reading social cues and reading between the lines, it's like so painful because you have a sense that something's gone wrong, but you just don't know what how to navigate it at all. And the way she writes about her friend being popular and just knowing how to be popular, I saw a lot of myself in that, just being like, how do people just do this on instinct? Oh, God, yeah. And when she, at first, when she doesn't sit beside her and she's initially very sort of forgiving of it and thinks, oh, you know, that's okay. It Maybe she's just trying to, you know, meet new people or doing what she needs to do on her first day. And I think, yeah, I don't know if it's okay to use this word, but it feels like gaslighting that really this sort of like being mm. suddenly frozen out and not knowing what you've done wrong and begging to know and being put in a position where you almost feel like you're not allowed to ask anymore yeah my I remember one of my friends saying like the end of a female friendship's more painful than a breakup uh and it's so true and I, I just love reading about stuff like that because uh it's just such a it happens so silently and men are so blind to it as well I think if you try and explain that kind of thing to them they can't yeah they see it going on the car crash bit though oh god yeah I'm learning to drive and it really (laughs) took me off um a fiction book that I think you might love Mm. that might get you back into Mm. fiction have you ever read prep by Curtis Sittenfeld no well it's about a young girl called Lee and Mm. for reasons best known to herself it's in the US where I guess things were a little bit different but she sort of becomes obsessed with the idea of going to a private school and her family are fine (laughs) but they're not that sort of family but you know she sort of gets these brochures and I think she sees a sort of gossip girl style picture of someone in a plaid kilt it was like that's the life for me so she gets this scholarship and off she goes and she's waiting to be seen and accepted and be popular but she just kind of ignores everyone and shuts everyone out all the while internally screaming like why don't you like me she, she thinks that the way to get people to like her is to just ignore them and she ends up having this very intense sort of hot and heavy affair with like the the hot guy in school who's got the amazing unlikely name he's called something like cross sugarman but it's really it's about <laughs> and you know how people say oh in america there's no class system and there so is no there is i went to uni with them because <laughs> were you at st andrews fuck no i nearly went to st andrews and i just uh, the royals were there uh prince william no prince yeah prince william was there at the time so i was like i'm not going it's too posh and i went to edinburgh, you go to edinburgh. but that was like just as bad oh my god it was so so awful like it was it's I mean it's a great uni and I thought our teachers used to actively discourage us from applying there they would tell you to go to Glasgow uni instead um one of my teachers literally said that don't apply for Edinburgh it's for posh people like talk about holding everyone down but yeah Edinburgh from the moment I got there it was such an isolating experience and I didn't really I didn't no, I was working class till I went there, really. And I got called a commoner in my freshers week. It was Which is the most kind of Victorian insult. <laughs> like, oh, I've Do you know what? come and from the, the 1800s. Hasn't changed. I mean, it hasn't changed because I've, I've done some stand-up about how excluded I felt at uni. And I've had people that are still at Edinburgh Uni now message me to say I'm a working class Scottish person and it's still like this. It's, um, yeah, I mean, I did meet 
nice people there. Uh, but yeah, it was so, so difficult. What you were saying about that book, though, about uh, the girl going to private school, that really reminded me of another book that I loved when you're talking about um, seeing yourself in books. Uh, was Good Morning Midnight by Jean Reese, which is all about the experience of interiority. If you, uh, you know, the women that wrote Wide Sargasso yeah. Sea, Good Morning Midnight's just this woman that lives in her head and is constantly having a crisis in her head and never saying anything. And I, I, the first time I read that, I was like, I don't know, just felt excited that there were other people like this that were like me. I really want to read more Jean Reese. And there was one I loved when I was a teenager, and I don't think it was Wide Sargasso Sea. And I did read last year, um, her editor, Diana Athill, wrote a memoir called Stet, and it's all about publishing different oh, yeah, authors. Yeah. Have you come across that? No, I've heard of the I've heard of the editor's name for some reason. Because she actually she wrote an incredible she wrote one novel and I think it's called Don't Look At Me That Way or Don't Look At Me Like That. Mm. And my friend got it for me for my birthday, my friend Sophie. And I read it and I was like, oh my God, I love this so much. I'm going to read all her novels. And I was like, oh, she's just written that one. That's it. That's that's the end. But it's really interesting. Her Diana Athill talks about what it was like to work with Jean Reese and what a challenge it was. And I think she was really really compassionate and wanted to help but I think that Jean Reese was really struggling and really unhappy and I guess as well at a time when setting off alarm bells <laughs> and you had to depend on people being kind yeah. to you but there wasn't really any sort of formal structural support yeah when I hear things like that that just makes me think Jean Reese uh was the same as me <laughs> do you I'm really curious about now we're having so many I, I think and hope having a lot more conversations about neurodivergence and people mm. I think seeing and understanding themselves better and I think you write about this that in terms of the way people are socialized to behave I think you know girls and women and people raised as girls and women sort yeah. of fly under the radar a lot of the time because a lot of the the ways that we want to act out are just stamped out before we can even even have a chance to do it do you find what you're doing in terms of, you know, visibility and awareness and making people sort of think about their own behaviour? Are people asking you and about and diagnosing themselves? And is that nice? Is that infuriating? No, I've had so, so, so many messages from people. It, it, went, it really amped up a level when Taskmaster was on. I went from getting maybe one message a week to like messages every day. To the, on Instagram to the extent that I need to make a little toolkit for people uh, saying this is what you should do if you want to get diagnosed here's why you might want to get diagnosed here's why you might not want to get diagnosed um, and it's it's weird because I never wanted to be you know when sometimes people find a cause and then that's all they do is go on and on about their cause I really didn't want to do that. I just want to be a really wealthy comedian. <laughs> like, um, I just want quite conventional things. But I was so furious at how incompetent um, people were at understanding autism. Like, people still think autism's a mental illness. Um, people still make the same face at me when I tell them I'm autistic. The problem is, is they change the word in because I've got what they used to call Asperger's. There's a whole political reason about 
why you can't see Asperger's anymore. So when I say I'm autistic, like I said it to this pensions advisor I had a meeting with who had an autistic son, and the look he gave me was so embarrassing because people are like, well, you're not like my non-verbal child or you're not having a meltdown right now, so you must just be this attention-seeking <laughs> lunatic or something. So um, it's extremely gratifying to have people say that I've helped them. Someone just sent a big letter yesterday saying I'd helped them with their teen daughter. And that shows you how bad the resources are that someone's asking a comedian for um, signposting on what to do with living with an autistic person. I think there will be a price to pay for talking about it. Like my agent said to me, don't, maybe don't talk about it too much. And he wasn't saying that in a like horrible way. It was kind of just, I, I know that if you're not interested in it, people are like, why is she banging on about this? I get, I get that. Because I know other people that bang on about a topic and I think, oh, give it a rest. But um, if you're autistic, there's so little decent information around it. Even doctors are completely ignorant about it. So that's why I keep posting about it. But I think it's going to come at a cost. Like, I'm shitting myself about the book coming out. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss we'll be back with fern soon but now it's time for my steal of the week i've chosen what happened on floor 34 by caroline kakorin 
I love Caroline's thrillers, which are as human and nuanced as they are addictive. This is the story of Rose, a successful journalist who finds herself burning out and losing the life she knows as she starts to investigate a chilling mystery in the office. The final twist genuinely made me gasp out loud. What happened on Floor 34 is published by Avon and out now. Now, back to fun. And I really do think that the more we read and learn and know about how people are living. I keep going on about um, another guest on this podcast, Lucy Easthope, who's a disaster expert who wrote a book called When the Dust Settles. And she talks mm. about her, her dyspraxia and being in a very glossy, organised world. It's not a place that is disastrous. You've got to be very slick and very on it. And she... Mm. isn't and she can't be and she's had to figure a way around it and how to kind of present as slickly as she can but she said that while she was called like the Bridget Jones of disaster management because she was a bit like you know askew and late and scatty oh I'm not being a sort Uh of charming whimsical joke I you know this is a part of something neurological that I, I live with and I think yeah the more we are encouraged to feel empathy and to just mm. be aware that I think everyone's probably got something that needs to be taken into consideration. And we want to be treated with consideration. I, mean, I think that's why I love reading. Um, I'm reading a lot now. I've stopped drinking. I've been reading a lot of addiction memoirs. What I'm really learning from them is that the enormous amount of emotional pain that most of us are in and how we damage ourselves by trying to resolve that in the short term. Yeah, I saw that you'd posted, you read um, Dry by Augustine Burroughs. I read that as well. Yeah, I love his writing. And uh, I remember though there was a, a lot of controversy around running with scissors. And I thought about that a lot around the ethics of who you're talking about in a memoir. Because I've not read Running With Scissors yet. I'm desperate to. It's so good. It's so much better than dry. I know you're saying you've got like a particular interest in reading about drinking, but, and I guess I've got, I love reading about dysfunctional families. So you, you know what it's about, is like his mum sent him to live with her psychiatrist yes who was a horrible abusive and he had sort of bizarre yeah the psychiatrist was like a big mad santa looking guy and he would read his fortune from his poos in the toilet like the the amount of insane details like that in the book um and also uh the psychiatrist had this adopted adult uh son who then starts having an affair with augustine burroughs who's like 13 or 14 yeah there's just so many so many crazy things in that but the family that it's about the psychiatrist family uh there's a really good article about them or an interview with them in the new yorker or something where they basically are all traumatized from him writing about them and and after i was thinking about that i read mary carr's the art of memoir because i wanted to learn about the ethics around doing a memoir there was a lot in mind where I was like, I don't know if this is right to be writing about these people because they don't have a right to reply or anything. I don't know what I think. Anne Lamott says, and I'm going to paraphrase horribly, something like, if people want you to write nice things about them, they should have behaved better, which there is another side to it. I've just read, um, gosh, what's her name? Mickey, um, Mickey from Lush, um, Fingers Crossed. I really loved it. And I think she does a reasonably good job about being even-handed and what's really sad is she's had obviously had a massive fight with Emma from Lush and it's years of built-up trauma and all the 
pain of what they went through together in the band and the the tension and I think she sounds quite generous and she says look Emma's got her reasons for what happened and Mm. I tried to be a good friend but obviously I could be annoying in these ways but she did this um no man who was around in the 90s comes out of it well which I think is it's very satisfyingly rageful oh yeah that's good to hear because I had been thinking of reading that oh when you were saying about books about drinking one of the books I said I loved on here was my friend Maurice's book Trouble which is about her being an alcoholic and also um uh she was a sugar baby in America and I I weirdly became friends with her from reading the book because we had a mutual friend who started a WhatsApp group. I really wanted to ask you about Trouble because I saw it in your list and I, d- I don't know it, but already I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm going to be reading this on my Kindle tonight. It's all the things I like to read about. <laughs> it's so good. It was easy. So I read it um, all, on, all in one day, Christmas Day last year. It's easily my favourite book of the last year. So my friend Alison, she's a comedian, an Irish comedian, she was like, oh, Maurice wrote a book and she was in LA. She had an affair with a comedian and she had a lot of nice dinners. That was how she told me, that was what she told me the book was about. But she had a lot of nice dinners. I started reading the book and I was like, have you read this? Because she was having dinners because she was a sugar baby. <laughs> like, <laughs> what? Um, it's insane. And uh, the reason I loved it as well is because... Um, I don't know if you know, my book's really like heavily Catholic because it's weird living in England. I don't think people realise how much uh, being Catholic or Protestant defines you in certain parts of the central belt of Scotland. I think this is one of the reasons why I loved your book so much because I was brought, I was raised super deeper Catholic, proper like constant, like having to go, not just yeah. every week, but having to go to all the fucking holy days of obligation. Um, yeah, Easter is just, it's like every oh, day of your Easter like holidays. school holiday, not for you. <laughs> You're going to yeah, be smelling yeah. weird things in a cold building all week long. Yeah. Any books about being a Catholic? And I think actually I heard you and Alison on Weird of Miss fortune doing some good oh. the catholic chat episodes are always my favorite ones oh cool yeah we we got a real kick out of the fact we were on the bbc <laughs> like the very english bbc doing the most irish catholic podcast ever because <laughs> yeah it does feel it really is another world and the closest people i feel that understand it are irish people or like my friend celia is a, a french comedian and she she said like when when she hears people talking about Irish Catholicism, it's so similar to Islam because she grew up Muslim. And I was like, yeah, pretty much. Like the attitudes to sex and bodies and women, like it's very, very, very strict. Um, so yeah, that was why I loved Maurice's book because the early parts of it were all about um, being a Catholic girl. And like I said, when I was growing up, a lot of the lead characters in Irvin Welsh's books are are Catholics, but it's just not the same having to cross empathise and read about male protagonists. Because I love Irvin Welsh's books as a teenager and still do. We've had him on the podcast. Um, Whoa, that's so amazing. Well, I think I was a bit sort of starstruck and it wasn't all... You know when you're like nodding, like, is this this going in? Uh, Yeah. But I remember 
really feeling like oh this is this is what I want to be like whenever a woman turns up in these books this is an instruction to teenage me on how I need to present myself to be sort of hot and sexy and available and total fairness to the man he did not write those books for teenage girls he really didn't oh because <laughs> I really loved porno I loved the character of Nikki and porno and it was disappointing when they keep talking about adaptations into films but I hated train spotting too because I think they should have made porno into a film if you were to adapt a book for screen other than strong female character, which I really want to see on TV, but if oh, you could, yeah. <laughs> let's let's manifest that one. Uh, what would you well. <laughs> What would you like to adapt? Oh God, I know the answer to this. I thought about this loads. Well, one of the books I mentioned to you when I emailed a certain age, which I feel so underrated. Like so many books I read as a teenager, I think if they came out now, people would be going on about them. I've never heard anything about the author since. It's by Rebecca Ray. A Certain Age is about uh, a girl living in, I don't know, a teen girl living somewhere in England. Her dad's being made redundant and he buys her a stereo for her birthday. And then the guy that sells them the stereo is this like 30-year-old and she starts this 14-year-old girl, the protagonist, starts going out with him. And it's weird how the family are okay with it. Uh, And then she's, like, self-harming prolifically. And then over the course of the book, it emerges that the guy she's going out with is actually much older. The situation with her dad is so much worse than you think. I don't know, it's just, it's a good book in terms of having, like, a really strong uh, 90s feel. And uh, it's about being a sort of weirdo goth girl at school and about first sexual experiences and stuff so I think I always adapt that I don't know if I've sold it very well it sounds really like spookily familiar to me like I feel as that I've that I've got a real feeling when you're describing it's like I can you you might have read it because as do you know I used to read so much Mm. when I was younger I've forgotten a lot of the books I've read and it's really annoying when you know you know you've read like classic literature like I used to love D.H. Lawrence I couldn't tell you the plot of Women in Love, but I remember thinking it was my favourite book. I tried to read Tender as the Night every year, and I think I started it to be like the cool girl. He's like, oh, I'm not going to, ironically, say Gatsby's my favourite. I'm going to choose the obscure. And instead of remembering the the glamour of it and thinking that Rosemary's Affair with Dick was really hot and like, oh, the Riviera, <laughs> and kind of also not being interested in the murder and just like, we'll skip past that. And then rereading it as an adult and thinking... This is a devastating story about kind of mediocre people most literally drowning in alcohol and child abuse and despair and a family falling apart. And how did I miss all this? I was just reading about pretty frocks and parties. I get that now where I go back and read stuff as an adult and I think I really didn't pick up on a lot of things I was reading as a teenager, like... It was almost like uh, I was just a little robot reading stuff, but you can't, um, you don't have the life experience Mm. to take certain things in or understand certain bits. I think that when people write about grief, and, you know, my goodness, I'm so relatively lucky in that the, the grief I have known hasn't been yet 
life-altering but reading Mm -hmm. you know being a teenager and reading about people dying and thinking oh you know that's sad but that's life and just uh, read Bleak House the very first time having to sort of force and trick myself into reading a chapter or two every morning for a couple of months and yeah I've never read any Dickens I mean and I was hoping I would (laughs) if I'm honest I didn't really enjoy the experience that much but the the deprivation and the death it does just kind of blindside you. There are funny bits and light bits, nice bits. What was I going to say when you said about grief? It just made me remember this other book. Oh, it's a fucking memoir again, though. Decca Aikenhead's All at Sea. That's like one of the best books ever. And the sea was like, calm. And then the husband went in for a swim. One of her kids started uh, struggling in the water and he rescued him. And then uh, just drowned. And it was one of those things where he drowned in like a tiny amount of water, and I and I bought it because she wrote, or, or there was like an extracts published, in the Guardian. That that always really sells a book to me. But yeah, I loved it so much. But I won't I won't go in the sea now. I, I mean I I really love that book, but there are definitely books I've read memoirs, and I've been really exasperated with them because sometimes I worry that I just have no critical faculties and I just love everything. And sometimes when a book really pisses me off, I think, ah, that's good. I still have opinions. Yeah, I've become more critical over the years. I think when I was younger, I would just it was kind of just whatever was in the library, whatever was in the house, just anything. Uh, but my dad was telling me that my gran. My gran that was in the book that's a very strong, um, a very big character and not the nicest. But she said to my dad, never feel like you have to finish a book that you've started. Like if you're not enjoying a book, just leave it. But I don't know if that would go again. It sounds like when you were reading Bleak House, it was very, I am going to read this <laughs> two chapters a day. Um, That was one of the reasons I did an English Lit degree was because I thought, this is going to force me to read Ulysses, finally. And did you? No. <laughs> <laughs> I've read the bit, I've read the chapter that's all one sentence. Uh, but I think it's just a woman talking about wanking. For many pages. Yeah, yeah. I've never read Ulysses. And yeah, there is that weird like, but it's the canon. But also, yeah. but then I think of, I just want to read... Um, I want to read Trouble and I want to read that uh, Augustine Burroughs book and I want to read your book again and I want to read Candy Girl again. I mean, there's definitely something to be said. I was saying to my boyfriend earlier today, I've been reading a lot of like my peers' books and a lot of memoirs and stuff. But there's times where you feel like I do need to read something more muscular and I need to read stuff stimulating because that's going to make me a better writer and a better thinker. But then what I tend to do is I read theory books, like feminist theory or things like that, or books about ideas rather than uh, novels. I hope I get back into novels one day. And, uh, well, I really, I, I hope you get back into mine. I want to send it to you. And it's got... Oh, yeah, send it. Um, It's got jokes in and it's got, sex in. and it's kind of it's not about stripping but it does sort of have that in it it's a bit about only fans and exhibitionism and oh attention it's okay it doesn't have to be <laughs> it doesn't have to have jokes in it either i think everything outside of my work everything i try and watch and everything that i read is usually dark um like i was saying all at sea is about a woman's husband just dying on the beach in front of her so everything i read outside of work is really really bleak 
So yeah, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the jokes. And actually, I feel quite self-conscious about, you know, it's not for me to say the jokes are funny. So, you know, that that <laughs> might be the opposite of a, it might be a minus point. It might not be a plus. I could honestly talk to you about books um, well into 2023, but I've probably got things to do. But So before we end, I wanted to ask kind of if what books are on your pile and what you're excited about reading about and also about rereading and if there are any kind of books you go back to for a comfort read comfort reading let me look at my kindle just now so after i finished katie's book katie wex's book i bought this book by the food scholar b wilson called first taste first bite called first bite how we learn to eat because um, I'm just really interested in the politics of food and nutrition and stuff like that. It co- it covers things like how hardly any teen boys in the UK... Uh, well, there's some stat about how teen boys won't eat vegetables because it's seen as feminine to eat vegetables. I'm just interested in things like that. Oh, that sounds really interesting. There was some a yeah. thing I was obsessed with on Channel 4, and it was like the secret life of or the secrets of, and they did loads of them. There's one on um, sweets and chocolate, the ice cream burgers. My favourite one was on sandwiches and the sort of the weird way that in, I suppose, between kind of the 60s, well, throughout the 20th century but like the the reclaiming of the british rail sandwich and sandwiches being kind of yuppified in the 80s and when mm. a takeaway sandwich first became a thing and i was um it's one of my favorite pieces of journalism ever it was a guardian long read on the history of a sandwich and <laughs> someone it. needs to write me a sandwich book <laughs> it might well that the guardian long read that might have been by b wilson she's always writing things for the guardian that are, are stuff like that really interesting historic things on food a thing I've been rereading recently for comfort is uh, Andrea Ashworth's Once in a House on Fire which I bought when I was a little girl I was always buying adult books and it's about um, these three little girls growing up with their mum in Manchester uh, in a really working class bit of Manchester and God, are you still living in Manchester? And I know where I'm on about. Not Fallowfield, but next to there. My well, family are from there. My sister's there and I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. So they're uh, Rushholm. Yes. They're growing up in Rushholm in the, in the 70s and the mum goes out with one abusive boyfriend after another and they just have this hellish upbringing and then in spite of it all, she ends up getting into Oxford or Cambridge. I loved a book where people had a difficult time and they got in a good uni at the end. So like that and um, Oranges are both books where that happens at the end. So yeah, I, I reread that this year and it's just such a, it's it's just so well written and so like, she's really like taking time over every description and it's really evocative descriptions. So yeah, I'd recommend that. And I think she's now a professor of literature somewhere in America. So, yeah. Amazing. So she kind of lived her own story. She also went off yeah, to a prestigious yeah. uni and love yeah. it. Oh, well, it's a true, it's a true story. Oh. But it's but it's written like, um, it's it's almost like a poet or a novelist has written a memoir. Do you know what I mean? In terms of all the descriptions. That sounds awesome. That sounds really, yeah. really brilliant. Thank you so much. I've had so much fun talking to you. I've absolutely loved it. 
I am such a huge fan of your writing and all oh, your work. And it's been a real oh, delight. Well, thank you. I still can't believe you read it. And thanks for the kind words because um, I, I, I could, it was so much easier to send it to people I hadn't met than send it to comedians. Like Alex Horn read the book and I wanted to die. I actually couldn't even look at him when he was telling me. <laughs> I mean, I bet that Alex Horn was like this for a lot of it as well. He, he was like, I certainly know a lot more about you. And I was like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> uh, it was so awful. Um, but yeah, he was very kind. <laughs> okay, as he should have been, because it really is excellent. But um, yeah, thank you so much for this. Have a good evening. I'm going to watch Happy Valley now. Huge thanks to Fern. Strong Female Character is out on February 16th and published by Blink. This is a future classic, whether you come to it as a Big Fern fan or whether you just love memoir and stories written by writers with utterly compelling voices, it will stay with you forever. I think this is a really significant book and I'll never stop talking about it and sharing it. I'm so excited to think about the readers who are about to discover it. Your Book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can find a list of all the books that Fern mentions on our page on bookshop.org. There's a book list and a link in the show notes. You can find us and follow us on social media at YBooked. Huge thanks to everyone who has given us a five-star review. And if you haven't done it yet and you've been listening for a little while, we'd really appreciate it. It's the best way to help people to find the podcast and their new favourite book. We'll be back next week. For now, I leave you with this from Catherine Gray. Being a writer and not reading is like being someone who wants to get warm yet refuses to sit next to a fire. See you next time. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.